Hello, and welcome to the What's Next podcast. My name is Liz Smith, owner of Liz Smith Law, and on this show, I share conversations to investigate building and leaving your legacy, estate planning for young families, supporting aging loved ones and parents, and other topics around aging, death, and other life transitions that will affect each of us. This is your source for hard-to-find resources in Southeast Alaska and beyond. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get each and every episode of our show. All right, welcome to another episode of What's Next. With me is, as my guest today, is Christine Eisenhower. Christine is a financial advisor and a co-owner at Blue Anchor Wealth Advisors. Christine is a certified financial planner and a CPA. She holds a degree in accounting and an MBA in finance from Regis University. Following an 18-year career in accounting, Christine completed her CFP, uh, Certified Professional Education Program, at the College for Financial Planning in 2014. Christine loves to exercise, read, and spend time with her family. And Blue Anchor Wealth Advisors is located in Ketchikan. And then I think you just opened a new office. Is that right, Christine? It is. We're an office in Michigan and an office in Bend, Oregon now. So we're doing a lot of traveling back and forth. That's great. And getting some sunshine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love Bend. My father lived there when I was in middle school and I spent a ton of time and I'm very fond. So that's a It's a fun community for sure. We've been getting some skiing in this winter um, and just enjoying that. But I am ready for the sun and I'm done with skiing and I'm kind of done with the snow. And are you, does that mean, are you able to work with Alaska, your Alaska clients virtually throughout anywhere you are? You, you know, we have clients all over the country. We have clients I've never met. Um, certainly COVID has accelerated the path to um, working remotely with clients, but most of our clients in Ketchikan, we meet with face-to-face because um, we travel up there um, or back and forth so frequently and we still um, hold a house in Ketchikan. So um we meet with most of our clients face-to-face um, and phone calls, Zoom, uh, texting, however it works. Yeah, there is something nice about the face-to-face when you can. I mean, I, I, I'm i limited to Alaska. I guess financial planners, you can work with anybody. It's not geographically limited. Um, it's geographically licensed. So we're licensed in several states. Um, and then it depends on the size of the firm and assets under management. Um, at some point you become licensed with the SEC and then that's a national registration. Okay, so I want to dive more into some of the acronyms and the education and the different, just some good background. Before I get there, and this story may not go anywhere, um, which I'll take credit for, but how, tell me about how Blue Anchor started and how your involvement started with it. Sure. So um, in 2012, I moved from Denver to Ketchikan and joined forces with um, my ex-in-laws, Jim and Mary Lindahl, who are partners, and they became my mentors. And I'm very lucky to have had that experience with them. Um, They retired and I acquired the business um, from them with my now husband, Matt. So we changed the name and changed um, a few things about the entity, really um, just to change our licensing um, and our tax structure. We retained um, 99.9% of our clients, fortunately. Um, So joined forces with my husband, Matt, and um, 
just continuing to improve and expand the business so that we can make sure that we're giving the best services possible, especially related to um, technology. We custody our assets at Charles Schwab. And the reason we do that is because they are the number one custodian for independent advisors. And that's very important to me because our bosses are our clients. We don't have um, you know, a, a custodian or a brokerage or an investment house that tells us what's best for our clients. Our clients tell us what's best. So that, that's a big key piece um, of being an independent advisor. Yeah, so I think I've heard of that as fiduciary or fiduciary standard of care. Is that mm-hmm. is synonymous with independent advisor? Uh, well, I would say it is, but, um, you know, like many terms, I think that's been hijacked. And, you know, every financial advisor will tell you they're a fiduciary. Um, and, you know, that that basically means that, you know, a fiduciary will put your financial interest in head of, ahead of their own financial interest. Um, so we have that's pretty well laid out because our fee, um, it's either an hourly fee, which we do pretty rarely, or it's a percentage of assets under management that you hold with us. So we are financially um, incentivized to grow our clients' portfolios. So if I was getting a fee or a commission to sell something to a client, then all of a sudden that fiduciary standard goes out the window, in my opinion. Um, As a certified financial planner, I have a higher level of a fiduciary standard. Um, I like to think I would do that anyway, and that it seems like the basic moral, ethical right thing to do, Um, but my licensure also requires it. And so you mentioned that you work with Charles Schwab. You used a different term, but what, tell me more about that relationship with Charles Schwab. Mm -hmm. What that means. So they're a custodian, which means that um, they physically hold the assets that are invested, whether it's in bonds or stocks um, or other types of investments. Uh, But an independent advisor like me, I could work with more than one custodian if I wanted to. I choose to work with one because Schwab is the best in the industry. um, And so there's really no reason to take on the complexity of another custodian. But some independent advisors like me do work with more than one custodian. So you're not affiliated with them. It's more like you're hiring them to work for you and your clients. To help us understand the some other models, can mm-hmm. you provide some more education about, so you charge a percentage or an hourly fee occasionally. Correct. Um, and... And how does that look? So if I invest 100000 with you, mm-hmm. and at the end of the year, it's 112000 is that, let's say, mm-hmm. um, what, how does the percentage, are you basing it off of what I've invested, or what's at the end, or does it, this could be a really dumb question, but let's not at all, nothing bolts, <laughs> not at all. So, so it's, For industry jargon, you know, it's called a fee-only advisor is what we are. So we only charge that fee. No other brokerage um, fee, no commissions, no loads, if your clients have heard of those. So that's kind of the comparison to how we work versus how, say, a broker would work, that they may charge a fee to trade. Um, So how our fee works, how we do it, is we charge it quarterly. It's based upon the account balance at the end of the quarter. Um, Most of our clients pay 1%, which is kind of industry standard. And it comes out of the client's Charles Schwab account, 
each quarter at 0.25% of the account balance. So, you know, there are some pluses and minuses to how that works. Um, if the quarter ends down, then the fee is lower. If the quarter ends up, then the fee is higher, regardless of what happened during the quarter. Um, and it's on the entire account balance. And I don't feel shy about saying that because sometimes I've had people who are newer to this type of model say, well, if you didn't make me any money over the quarter, why are you charging me a fee on the whole thing? And I'll tell you why, because I work harder when the market goes down than when it goes up. So it's just the way it is. And you said something important, I think, that I want to, so so in this other, the fee is no matter how many times I call you and say, let's look Correct. at things, or I want to do this, or, okay. Mm -hmm. So usually, um, you know, I'm happy to take any phone call, text message, I'm serious, a lot of clients text us, email at any time. Usually we set up a plan. So the meeting plan could be quarterly, especially if um, the client is a newer investor or newer to working with us. Um, some of our clients like to meet twice a year. And some people I kind of like bring into the office kicking and dragging to meet with them once a year. So it's really a little bit based upon um, just investor expectations and experience, um, you know, and just investor preference. Um, eventually, it does get down to a compliance and regulatory issue that uh, I like to see people or at least talk to them once a year. If someone, you've mentioned the word brokerage, will you define that, what that means? Mm -hmm. So a broker, um, is better, it's different than an advisor. So I'm an advisor, so people pay me for my advice. A broker, you know, typically it would be more like somebody might call and a broker up and say, I heard that, um, you know, such and such stock is a buy right now, buy me a hundred shares. They're not getting any advice. They're telling their broker what they want to do for their portfolio. It's, you know, as an advisor, I have very personal relationships with my clients. Um, and I say that's because our financial lives and our personal lives tell a story and it's the same story. A broker, they might, you know, maybe they go out and go to coffee or go to yoga or go golfing or whatever together. But the relationship, um, you know, is more independent because as an advisor, like I got to know some of the dirty nitty gritty of people's lives in order to give them um, good financial advice. So that's that's an interesting, it just reminds me when I started working in private practice as an attorney and, and doing estate plans and people would say, you know, don't be an order taker. Like I knew that I didn't want to be the order taker. Ah, attorney. Yeah. It's the same that would say, oh, you know, you come to me, tell me what you want. I'll draft the documents. But we we switch that on its head and, and make sure we understand the background to provide the education. Um, exactly. And and what is the, you mentioned that in some other, I don't know the right word, but when there's a commission paid based on mm -hmm. what's sold, how does that model work? If you can maybe. So, I mean, first I have to say I've only been a fee-only advisor in yeah. my career, but I know that there um, are models where some firms do a combination of an annual fee um, plus um, a commission. So that's kind of a combo firm. 
Um, and then there are others that only take a commission. So it, it's just a, a different preference, I guess, in how to organize and, and how to run a firm. Um, obviously, I'm kind of partial to the fee only. Um, and that's because I think that it doesn't provide me with financial incentive to encourage a client to have one type of investment over another. I, I think that that creates a conflict of interest. Um, but I'll be open if you spoke with a broker or somebody else, they may have a different opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's great to have the background. That's what I think is important, right? So if our listeners say, okay, I can now ask what, mm -hmm. how someone's getting paid, right? There might be, how are the fees going to be taken? How does it calculated? And I'd like to get into some of the, um, I guess I'd love you to define what a certified financial planner is. And I'm curious if there are, like, does a broker have to be a financial certified financial planner? What What's out there in the world of different types of education for people that call themselves work in the financial field? I don't even want to say people that call themselves financial advisors. Right. There's a lot of um, technical differences. And if, uh, you know, to get really particular, there are some folks that are licensed to do trains that technically are not licensed to give advice. I think it's pretty hard pressed to expect somebody to give zero advice that works in the industry. Um, but, you know, people may have heard of the series license, like a series 67 or a series seven or different types of licensing that way. Those are tests um, that FINRA um, oversees. And they allow individuals to become licensed to do trades um, through typically through a broker or through a custodian, or at least to input those trades. Um, as a certified financial planner, my job is to have more of a holistic approach to financial planning and advice. So, um, you know, part of what you get educated on with the CFP program um, is insurance. Um, some legal planning, I'm very quick to say I'm not a lawyer, so no worries there, Liz, because I know it. very quickly I can get out of my wheelhouse there. Um, but uh, enough to know uh, when to refer a client to a lawyer. Um, and then, of course, uh, financial planning um, and investment basics is really what the Certified Financial Planner Program provides to its licensees. What about any, I think of financial planners also as counselors. Does that, is there any, how do you view that? Um, you, you know, there, there are a lot of different license structures, which I think you referred to, you know, um, uh, and, and there are, um, you know, advisors that help with, with budgeting um, and, you know, more basic financial um, structures for a household and things like that. Um, what I find honestly is that I'm too expensive to do that work for people. They're, they're going to um, find somebody else probably that can provide that type of work um, at a better fee structure than what we charge here. Okay. So the, and, and what, yeah, let's dive into how you go about helping someone, what, what services you do offer in terms of guiding um, someone that comes to you. So most of our, our clients are kind of split into three buckets, I would say. Um, one, we have a minimum asset and under management expectation of at least $50,000. 
Um, as a firm, we're probably still losing money by providing services for a client at that level. Um, and there are from time to time that we will take on um, kind of what we consider pro bono accounts um, as part of our way of giving back to the community. Um, but what we usually work best with are folks that are already retired um, that are moving into the phase of taking distributions from their accounts to live on as opposed to that accumulation phase. Um, so that's a big bucket of our work. Uh, the other bucket of our work is those people that are working towards retirement, maybe 10 to 15 years out. They're still in that accumulation phase. Um, we're pushing them to save. Um, always having that balance of life versus savings, though, that's very important to me. Um, and then we have a bucket of clients that are those people that have had a, a money movement event in their life. So, um, you know, I said earlier that most people's money story and their personal story go together hand in hand. So that could be, um, you know, a big one is the death of a loved one and you've received an inheritance and now what? I wasn't expecting this or I was expecting this um, kind of found money experiences. Um, or it could be, um, you know, changing of jobs. So you have an, an old 401k or an old employer-sponsored retirement plan bucket of money. What do I do with it now? And how do you view focusing on that transition from, I think you called it the accumulation phase to the, what's the next phase? Uh, I, I call it the spending phase, the distribution phase. Yeah. And how do you view that from your perspective in terms of what people, however you want to answer that, I guess. Okay. It, it's very different. You know, during the accumulation phase, it, you're focused on um, figuring out uh, how to save, how to have that balance in life of um, joy now and not saving too much for the future. But, um, you know, are you saving enough for retirement? So there's really the piece of retirement planning, um, retirement income forecasting, which we utilize software for um, and needs to be updated every year, by the way, because <laughs> it's, you know, nobody wants to hear this, but it's just all a big pile of really well-educated guesses because we don't know what inflation is going to be. We don't know what your rates of return are going to be. And we don't know exactly what your savings rate is going to be. But that phase of saving um, is focused on growth as, as much as you need and as much as the investor can handle from their risk tolerance profile, um, which is very different from once an investor moves into um, their retirement years. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of clients that, believe it or not, have account balances that are for retirement years that they're actually not taking distributions out of because maybe they um, have some great state benefits um, or they've just done a good job of other types of investments. But most people take distributions. Um, and at 72, with current legislation, you have to start taking distributions. So that's a different focus of investing because you're looking to produce income to support your distributions, as opposed to that accumulation phase, you're looking for growth. Um, and I think a lot of people don't know how to make those changes in their portfolio. Um, don't know that they should be making those changes in their portfolio. And I think it can be key to the success because obviously everybody says their goal is to not outlive their money 
because you don't want to be super, super poor and super old at the same time, right? <laughs> so it's it's a balancing act um, and helping retirees navigate those first 10 to 15 years of retirement where they're healthy, they say, Christine, we want to go on vacations or, or whatever their desires are. Some people say, we love Southeast, we're going boating for our entire retirement years, whatever it is, making sure that we're balancing the spending now so that they have the joy now and that they have the resources necessary as they age and maybe have increased medical expenses. Yeah, I could imagine that with some clients, that's going to be the making sure that they're comfortable that they can spend, right? For for some, it's like, actually, you have enough, you'll be okay. Yeah, I'll tell you you a little story. Um, One of my favorite clients in Ketchikan is an older lady. I think she's probably around 85. She's accumulated um, several million worth of savings over her lifetime. She worked hard. Um, And she will call me usually every spring and ask if she can afford to go on vacation. And I'm like, yes, you should. This sounds fabulous. You know, I'm planning an elaborate vacation for her. I'm preparing to, you know, send $20,000 to her checking account from her investment account. And then she'll say, I think I'm going to spend (laughs) $1,200. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you need to spend more. But, you know, it's, it can be very hard for people that are savers and good savers um, to change those behaviors. Because when you've spent, you know, 70 years working and saving to suddenly, you know, just spending in what you would consider a frivolous manner, that's not an easy adjustment to make. But I am a cheerleader for spending and enjoying your money. We didn't save it or we don't save it just to accumulate it and have it be a number on a statement. It needs to be enjoyed. Right, right. Or to pass on to your kids. <laughs> They'll probably be okay too. Enjoy it while you can. Well, and pass it on to your kids while you're alive. Um, I'm also a big proponent for that. Um, and helping people uh, set up for gifts and estate planning in that manner. Um, doing qualified charitable donations. I know we didn't get to that acronym, but um, if you, when you turn 72 and you have to start taking distributions from your IRA, if you send that money to a qualified charitable donation, currently it's not taxed. And that's a great way to give if, if it's something that you're interested in. I don't encourage people to give if it's not in their heart, but if it's something they're doing anyway, it's like, let's do it now and have that tax advantage. Yeah, what a good thing to mention. Mm-hmm. Not just do it now. Well, yeah, the tax advantage. Mm-hmm. So, and I love that idea of, of if you can to provide for your kids now. And I had actually heard, I don't know where, but some something kind of saying that often financial planners are trying to rein the parents in from giving too much. And so I'm sure there's a balance there, but I like the, um, you know, help them. You can provide, I heard some like kindling, right, for them to get going and at a certain stage in life that could help more than later. Right. You know, I I don't see that too much. I've had a few clients over the years that have had experiences with children where, um, you know, paying rent or 
basic, you know, expenses. Um, you know, and, and my job is to help clients reach their financial goals. And if one of their goals is to help their kids with rent, I'm all for it. I'm not here to, to give my opinion or to judge it. I'm here to help them reach their financial goals. And as a parent, if I had a kid that needed me to pay their rent, you know, I just may be doing that someday too. And so that's why I say it's no judgment. It's, it's for me to help them do what's best for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, provide that education, I suppose, of, of the parent that might not have enough to help themselves. Absolutely. I, you know, that's true. I have told a client just recently that she's too nice. <laughs> so you're right. <laughs> you're just providing education. <laughs> if you keep doing that, you might run out. <laughs> yes, that was exactly the conversation. I'm like, we can do that, but it's going to hurt you in the long run. So. Christine, sometimes I see individuals who have the have worked a lot of different jobs and have these little retirement accounts kind of all over the place. <laughs> what are their options of making life easier for them? Yeah, so we all have had several jobs in our lives. And if you haven't, you will, <laughs> because it will happen for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, usually you have, or hopefully you have, an employer-sponsored retirement plan. And that's a 401k or a 403b, um, or it has different acronyms. Um, but the gist of it is that those are usually tax-deferred dollars. If your account balance is less than $5,000, then employers can actually kick you out of that plan. And what that means is that they may just send you a check that's taxable income, and you don't want that check. The reason they can do that is because it's a lot of responsibility for employers to keep track and stay in compliance um, with employees that are no longer there or ex-employees. So what is recommended is that you open up an IRA at a custodian. It could be Charles Schwab. It could be any custodian. And you transfer the assets from those old retirement accounts into your IRA and you get them all in the same place. So you've got this bucket of money that's your retirement money. So most people will end up with an IRA that holds money that they've earned in retirement plans from previous employers, and then plus their current employer savings account. So they got two at the same time. And then if you leave that current job, again, you take those funds and you roll it into your IRA and you just keep doing that. That way you don't lose the money, um, it's not invested in something weird that you thought was great in your early 20s. And now that you're a little older, is no longer suitable because it does matter how you invest your money. Um, a lot of retirement plans now have what's called target date funds. And um, if you're not sure what you're doing, a target date fund is definitely a suitable choice. Um, how they work in general is that the older you get, the more conservative the fund gets. So that way, let's say you have an old job from 10 years ago <laughs> that you've kind of forgotten about and left, um, it theoretically should be continuing to match um, just kind of a, a general investor's risk tolerance profile over those last 10 years if you forgot about it and didn't pay attention to it. Let's talk about what's happening in the market now um, and what you're sharing with I suspect clients are coming to you. So it is spring of 2022. And yeah, what are you seeing? Yeah, it's 
it's been a tough quarter. Q1 of 2022 uh, was really tough, especially because we have heightened investor expectations. Um, you know, the last couple of years, even though we've had a lot of volatility because of the COVID crash in the market, um, have been great market years. We're, we've had a bull market for the last 10 years. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation since I've been doing this since 2012 of like, you know, when's the next shoe going to fall? Um, not, it's not if, it's when. So we're here. Um, you know, and the answer to what's going on, I, I could say, you know, inflation, inflation, inflation. Um, and certainly inflation is key and most paramount to what's going on with market valuations. Um, but we also have still supply chain logistics and holdups. Um, and the reason why that continues to be um, a market valuation force is because if companies don't have goods and services to sell, they aren't producing revenue. Um, and then also, you know, right now, uh, the Ukraine war is creating uncertainty in the market, and the market does not like uncertainty. Um, also, of course, you know, diminished expectations of exports from Russia in terms of food. So not only do we have a humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, we've also going to be having a food crisis um, and the impact of oil prices from decreased energy from Russia. Now, all that to say, really the biggest influencer of what's happening in the market uh, is inflation. Because you have to understand that the stock market trades into the future. And um, you know stocks really trade based upon supply and demand, just like anything else in our economy. And demand for stocks is created by earnings of corporations. So for example, Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft um, some of the biggest drivers in the stock market, um, big companies in the U.S., they trade out on forward earnings um, out like 20 years into the future. So the price that you're paying for the stock today is based upon what you think the next 20 years of earnings are going to be. Now that we have inflation, guess what? All those earnings are worth less than they were that, than we thought they would be, you know, say January or February of this year. So that drives down market prices. Um, the, the good thing to know, though, is that not all stocks trade that far into the future. So technology stocks, you know, trade out further than other sectors of the market. Um, and we can see this based upon market returns because the NASDAQ, which is an index that's mostly comprised of technology and growth stocks, is off about 11% year to date, as opposed to some other sectors of our economy, um, like the healthcare sector. I think is off about 5% year to date. And that's because they don't trade so far out into the future. So valuations weren't um, raised to those same levels, which is kind of a case for being diversified. I mean, it, it, you can make a case for being diversified in your portfolio um, just over and over and over again. And, and this continues to be one of those. The other thing I would like to point out to investors is that the first quarter of this year has been brutal, not just because stocks were down in valuations, but so are bonds because we're in a rising rates environment. And that means not only inflation rates, but of course, as inflation goes up, interest rates are forced to go up or the Fed is forced to raise interest rates. So bonds have also been underperforming this quarter. So you're not getting anything good out of either side, which is a real bummer. <laughs>
Are you willing to share what you're, how you're helping clients that say, oh my God, <laughs> the world is, what do I do? Yeah, you know, um, the thing about that is that we've actually done that work a long time ago. So we have very few clients that are calling with the oh my God, phone call. Um, because, you know, part of what we do is build a plan. And we know for our clients um, as they enter retirement that we're going to have a market correction. And a market correction um, is a 10% decline in stock valuations. Um, we know we're going to have recessions. We know we're going to have a market crash. So if somebody does call me, my answer is we planned for this. We prepared for this. We knew this was going to happen, but let's make some changes to your portfolio anyway. So one of the things we started doing last quarter, um, and by last quarter, I actually mean fourth quarter of last year, is moving gains out of tech positions because we knew inflation was coming, although I had no idea it'd be seven or eight percent. And neither did the Fed, by the way. <laughs> but so, you know, we kind of started moving um, positions you know, back then, taking gains. That said, most investors are still overweight tech. Um, I know I have to admit, even my portfolio is a little overweight tech, but I'm a very aggressive investor. Um, so, and, and I would say, if you think you might be overweight tech, talk to your advisor because it's not too late to make some changes in your portfolio because we're going to have inflation for several years to come. I don't think it's going to get back to 2%. Um, our Fed, our Federal Reserve Board, has a dual mandate. And one of those mandates is to keep inflation at the rate of 2% because inflation is actually a good thing for our economy. It indicates growth. Um, and But, you know, by the way, we have struggled to keep our rates of inflation anywhere near 2% in recent history. There was a general consensus from economists, um, even Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve Board, that we were in what was called a new normal of low inflation. And they were struggling to get inflation up. And, um, you know, I hear I bought that hook, line, and sinker. The reason that they were saying that, this is just funny now, is that our supply chain logistics were amazing. Um, that keeps inflation low. The other reason they were saying that um, is because of globalization of economies in terms of um, having cost efficiencies. And that really means, um, and you could, might have an opinion about this, but that really means using goods and services from underdeveloped worlds um, and creating goods at cheaper costs and then shipping them around the world. But one of the things we're seeing is a deglobalization of economies, not just here in the U.S., but a lot of countries are deglobalizing. That's why I think we're going to continue to have inflation. Um, you know, we we might actually be meeting <laughs> our two and three percent targets. And so high inflation through 2023 are higher than normal. Um, I think after 2023, we're going to still see some raised levels of inflation. Um, you know, and maybe it'll be that the Fed is able to target that 2% average that they um, have a mandate of, or maybe it'll be more like 3%. I'm not sure. I don't think it'll be 7%, but I also don't think it's going to go back to 1%. Thanks for sharing. 
I have no comment. I just yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> really I told cool. you it can get meaty. <laughs> it's great. That's so good. Uh, and now I'm going to shift gears to somewhat somewhat lighter, but. We actually, this was a conversation we had before, but you said something I really liked about um, that your goal is to build wealth for your clients. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, for some reason, like the, the framework of, of wealth and just thinking about that. And so what do you find that folks might find surprising about, you know, you see people who are being smart about investments by, you know, working with you and getting advice and, and making good choices. And um, what might we be surprised about with the investors in our communities? I think that you can't profile investors. You would be surprised um, what people have accumulated, even uh, whether it's on their own being smart through receiving inheritance. Um, I think the other thing that people don't always know is that women um, are proven to be better investors than men. And they're programmed, um, is that what you said? Proven. <laughs> proven, okay. <laughs> we're pro- we're <laughs> like Stepford wives and that were. <laughs> but women, women have um, proven themselves to be better investors than men. And I think that in my experience, that's because women um, are maybe a little bit more open to having a tribe around them of receiving that input, um, of knowing that we can't really do it all. And that input of having expertise um, helps them be open to education and be open more to long-term planning. Um, not to say that men aren't too. Men uh, are very good investors, but um, the approach that men and women take to investing uh, is very different. So, you know, I also think you can't profile investors in terms of their risk tolerance. Um, you know, I really think it comes down to experience. And, uh, you know, I heard the other day that nothing replaces experience. And, you know, that can be in the context of so many different things in life. And I see that in investors, usually new investors come to me and I'll ask them uh, how they feel about investing. They'll say they're nervous, that they're conservative. Um, And so it just takes time of getting used to market volatility. So um, it doesn't matter on what their age is, um, what their income level is or what their assets are. It just takes some time. That raises, I'm curious, in in my work, a lot of times we're spouses. There's one spouse driving it, right? There's one spouse that's making the appointment and really doing the background Absolutely. work. It's usually um, for heterosexual couples, the, the female. Um, but how do you and your work go? Because I bet you see that too. I mean, I think that's quite natural in in couples is that one is managing the finances and they're paying attention to that. And of course you're dealing with people in retirement age and there's going to come a point most likely where one spouse is carrying on. How do you have ways that you talk to people about like bringing, I guess I'm thinking is getting both couples educated part of your goals and how do you do it? That's not necessarily my goal if it's not the client's goal. 
be fair. Because, uh, you know, I have a couple that comes in. <laughs> they are so sweet. He is, I think, like 92. And she's 85. Um, and he usually falls asleep in our meeting. So, you know, <laughs> and it just depends. So I usually pro provide enough education um, to make sure that if only one individual of the couple is making most of the financial decisions, I want to make sure the other spouse understands the power that they've given to the other part of their couple. Because, you know, not you'd be not surprised to know that couples don't always have the same investment profile. So I have a couple where uh, the male is a fairly aggressive investor, loves to come and talk economics with me, and we'll chit chat it up for two hours. His wife will come to about every fourth meeting, um, is usually kind of bored and would rather do something else. Don't blame her. And um, she's a conservative investor. And so you know, my job is to respect what her wishes are for her account um, and to make sure she understands, uh, you know, what moves we're making in her portfolio. But she doesn't need to come if she doesn't want to. That's okay. She hires me for that. Before we started recording, I don't know how to tee up this question, so I'm just gonna. Okay, uh, go but ahead. you mentioned cash go, go for houses. I'll use I'll use that to tee up the. Um, what are you seeing in the market? That might be driving housing. The housing market, yeah. So I don't think that there's a bubble. I'm just gonna start there. Um, the 2008 housing bubble, if y'all remember that, uh, was pretty brutal. And obviously set off a recession, um, set off a market crash, and took several years to recover from. Um, you know, I, I want to buy a new house right now, so I wish I could say that market valuations were going to come down. Uh, I think they may flatten. You know, the, the Fed is raising the interest rates right now to intentionally create a slowdown in our economy. So that's going to include housing prices, but we are still short houses, and we are very short houses. Part of the reason we're short houses goes all the way back to 2008 when um, home builders you know, couldn't get rid of their houses fast enough. A lot of the people that they had working for them left, maybe went back to another country where they um, could find a job because they could no longer find one here building homes. Um, and the millennial generation is bigger than we thought it would be um, and is more eager to form households than we expected. And retirees are not selling their homes in the way that we thought they would. You know, come to find out, they want to retain their big houses for grandkids to come visit. So they're not selling. Plus, there's a shortage of long-term care or independent living facilities. So even if they did sell their house, where would they go? So that's driving demand for homes. And I don't think um, that we're going to see a market bubble in Obviously, as interest rates rise, currently, I think um, a standard mortgage at 30-year term is about four, maybe four and a half percent, um, which actually sounds high for recent history, right? Um, we have not started to see a deceleration in pricing. The most recent um, data that I read said that it's going to take a while for that deceleration to happen. 
So we're going to continue to see, um, you know, this 20% increase year over year, which is crazy um, in real estate pricing, probably through the middle of next year. And then we might start to see a slowdown. Um, we'll see. Uh, you know, there's only so much of a household budget that can withstand um, payment of a mortgage. Currently, um, you know, people that are buying homes right now and down that 20% is taking about 30% of their household budget to service their mortgage. That's a lot of money, especially for households that maybe have kids and are paying daycare fees, um, or if you still have student loans, although those are all still on suspension at the moment, but they probably won't be forever. Um, so we shall see. Uh, I'm not convinced um, that there isn't going to be some sort of pullback. I just don't think it's going to be aggressive. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> and thanks for talking with me. I'm going to start to wrap up. Okay. But I wanted to ask, and then we kind of moved at the beginning, but you had a huge career as a CPA, and then now you switched to being a financial, so you were an accountant, certified public accountant, now a certified financial planner. What brought that on, that switch? So um, as a CPA, I always worked in private industry. I never worked in, as a public accountant, and there is a very strategic difference. So a CPA that works with a public firm um, is usually doing taxes um, and helping small business owners. I always worked for large corporations, um, producing financial statements, running operations, um, running the accounting team and the finance team. So I've always had a business acumen towards um, you know, running a business of my own and also understanding how the operations of an organization work and the financial statements and how um, those drive business decisions. And that has been very helpful for me um, as an advisor and um, evaluating stocks, evaluating the economy um, and what I think is going to be coming next and down the pike. So really the driver for me, though, at the end of the day, all that sounds great. But at the end of the day is that I had two small kids and I was tired of working 60 hour weeks. So I needed a change of lifestyle and um, I was afforded an opportunity to do this. And I had to tell you, this job is way more fun than being an accountant every day. <laughs> That's awesome. Having found what I love to do, too. Uh, I, mean, I, can, I can see that too, just talking with you. I mean, I get to see you, our listeners won't, <laughs> but I'm sure they will hear it in your voice that this is something you're passionate about. I am for sure. My, my uh, oldest son told me he is thinking of getting a degree in economics and I take that as a win all day long. <laughs> so proud of him. So I'd love to ask guests, which is can be a funny question, but if you have a tip for our listeners on a, any type of life transition, so that could be from the work you do when you see clients retiring or going through a divorce, some kind of transition, or from your personal life, which can be uh, nice to, to hear and share. Sure. Uh, number one, give yourself some grace, especially if you're going through something new. Um, I've been through a divorce and I recently um, had the experience of my dad passing last fall. Two new experiences that were awful. So give yourself some grace. The other thing on the money side 
is everybody I think's probably heard this, but don't make any big financial decisions. There's no rush. You can do it in your own time frame. Take your time and give yourself time to mourn, especially on the estate side. Um, my experience has shown me that mourning the loss of my dad and administering his estate are two very different experiences. Um, so allow yourself some grace and some time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Liz. And I want you to tell us how people can find you, find Blue Anchor. But is there anything else you want to say to our listeners before that or with that? Um, I encourage everybody who is considering investing to make sure you develop a plan that feels right for you. Um, and that feels right for every economic situation. And if you're working with an advisor that isn't developing a plan for you that's comfortable to find a new advisor, I think you should, just like you would maybe interview real estate agents or a CPA or a lawyer or any professional, you should meet with more than one professional before you make a final decision. Um, I would take that as a compliment if somebody wanted to meet with me to check me out first um, and make sure that we're a fit. How you can find us, um, we are in Ketchikan. You, we have a website, blueanchorwealth.com. Um, and so you can reach out to us through our website um, or you can give us a call and we're happy to help. Great. Thank you so very much for your time and sharing some great information with listeners. I really, really appreciate it. And it was nice well, talking with you. Well, thank you. It was fun. I appreciate the time. That's all for this week. You can find show notes for this show and prior episodes and future episodes at lizsmithlaw.com. And if you're interested in scheduling a meeting with us to find out what your next step would be for your estate planning, visit us at bit.ly slash mygiftfromlsl. Again, that's bit.ly slash mygiftfromlsl. Or find the link at lizsmithlaw.com. We look forward to seeing you again right here, same place, same time, two weeks from now. Thank you so much.